So um, we did five of the ten videos the last time. I forget what month it was, but there were five Wednesday nights that time, so it worked out well. This time we have four Wednesday nights this month, so tonight we're going to do two back-to-back. And that is only partially related to the fact that I take the next section of the CPA exam Friday and um, am less prepared than usual. So um, we'll do uh, two of them tonight, and then um, after this, we'll do one and uh, a normal discussion like we did in March or whenever that was. The ancient land of Israel is a testimony, an evidence of the greatness of what God did in that country, a testimony to the truth of the words that we find in the pages of the Bible. Following in the footsteps of Jesus, on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem, knowing that ahead of him was a cross, is a powerful experience for the modern disciple of Jesus. In this barren wilderness, with its many opportunities for escape, Jesus made a decision to continue walking, to go to the city, and to face the cross. It's in this wilderness where Jesus is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus came through here on his way to die and passes through the same desert in which he was tempted. And he had to be thinking, isn't there some other way? So in a sense, he's even facing a temptation of what should he do? I like to think of those three temptations by the devil were all temptations to Jesus to choose a different battle plan than God's. But the only battle plan was for him to go and to give himself. The road Jesus took from Jericho to Jerusalem leads through the Judea wilderness. It comes out of the wilderness on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. On the Sunday before Passover, this road was thronged with people for this day was a special day. It was lamb selection day. It was the day people came to choose a perfect lamb for the Passover that would soon follow. And among the crowd, riding on a donkey that day, was a lamb.
So let's refresh our memories. Jesus' last teaching to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi had to do with Jesus saying to them, we need to confront the very gates of hell. From there, he turned his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, his focus from that point on was going up to Jerusalem, which would result eventually in his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension somewhere right here behind where we're sitting. Came down across from the Jordan and then walked that very narrow canyon road there on the way up from Jericho on up to Bethany and then to this place. I'd like to set the stage for you. According to the book of Exodus, the Sunday before Passover was a very special Sunday. It wasn't just an ordinary Sunday. In a sense, that Sunday way that people began to celebrate Passover, we might say. So you have to imagine crowds of people streaming down this hill on their way to Jerusalem because the following week was going to be Passover and people started arriving already on that Sunday. But what made that Sunday important, according to Exodus 12, is that that was the day that each Jewish family picked the lamb that was to die on the following Friday. Suggesting, I think, that Jesus' descent into Jerusalem along the road here on the side of the Mount of Olives was not simply coming as a triumphant king on a donkey, but it had to do with Jesus showing up to go up to this city to die on the day the Lamb was picked. It's almost as if God said to the world, here's my Lamb. Will you choose him? And I think that's very significant because one aspect of the faith lesson here, to me, is Jesus' very clear statement by the day he chose to come into Jerusalem is to say, have you recognized who I am? But there was something else we need to realize. Passover season was the season of freedom. It was the season that Jewish people celebrated their being liberated from their imprisonment and their bondage in Egypt. And that made it a time when often incidents occurred. Josephus records incidents right here on the Mount of Olives, where someone would come, declare himself to be Messiah, and on Passover season would come into the city and cause a riot or a stir, resulting in the Roman garrison coming down out of the Antonia, and a slaughter occurred. So Passover was a time when the Romans brought in extra troops. The people thought extra about the fact that they wanted freedom, they hoped for the Messiah. In fact, there's even a rabbinic tradition that says the temple door was left standing open that day, just in case that's the day the Messiah occurred. And with that in the background, we could turn to the story as it's told in Luke. He approached Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, and he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus through their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God with loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, maybe particularly the raising of Lazarus. But I want you to notice something. The way Luke writes here, the crowd was quiet. It says when they approached, they began to celebrate loudly 
implying that prior to that they had not been celebrating loudly. Now the impression is that these pilgrims descended into this city in almost silence. Maybe simply because of the danger that if they raised too much of, a, of an outcry about their happiness about being there, it could cause an incident with the Romans. But here comes this Jesus, this Galilean Jewish rabbi that people had been asking, you know, is this possibly the Messiah? He comes here and the disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Now I want you to feel what a risk that was. On the day the lamb was picked, leading up to the feast of celebration of freedom, in anticipation that the Messiah might come, that suddenly these disciples began to sing and cheer and to celebrate that Jesus was the one. Matthew tells us what it was they said. Two things Matthew says. One, they shouted, Hosanna. Now, when we sing Hosanna in our churches, we imagine Jesus coming down and this whole crowd going ahead of him shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. That sounds like something very nice to say. But Hosanna was a political statement, more than a religious one. Hosanna meant, deliver me, give me my freedom. So here are these crowds chanting to Jesus, not Hosanna, this is the Son of God who came to die for our sins, but rather, we're sick of these Romans. Hosanna, save us, deliver us, give us our freedom. And that was about as political as it gets. Now it's in that context that the leaders of the people said, can you hush these people up? Do you realize what would happen if we let them cheer this particular thing? We could be in big trouble. The second thing Matthew mentions, is that they wave palm branches. The coins of the last time that the Jewish people had been free, the time we call the Maccabees or the Hasmoneans, used as their nationalistic symbol, a palm branch. Palm branches had nothing to do with peace and love. Palm branches were to the Jewish person of the time what the stars and stripes are to the Americans. It was a way of saying, we want our freedom. We want deliverance. Now let me, let me just reset that because I want you to feel that because that becomes so important to what we come to next in Luke. The crowd is silent. Why? Because it's a dangerous time. And here comes this Jesus. The crowd sees him, recognizes him as the miracle worker of the Galilee and begins to chant, Hosanna, save us, deliver us, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David, Messiah. Of course, Jesus coming from the appropriate direction of east fit that expectation. But the kind of deliverance they're cheering for is not the Lamb Selection Day deliverance, but rather the political kind of deliverance that comes from the king. And then they wave palm branches, almost glorifying the fact they were looking for a national deliverance. And the Pharisees said, Jesus, shut these people up. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. It strikes me that as this Jewish man walked through his life, he had all of the feelings and the attitudes and actions that we do, without sin, of course. And one of the things he did is he cried. And twice in the Bible, we have the record of Jesus crying. And right in the same geographical location, 
But if we look at the two times he cried, they're really quite different. They happened the same week. The first time is just over the backside of the country. And he comes to this little town, and as he comes, his friends come running out to meet him, Mary and Martha. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I now know that even God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Then comes Mary. Mary comes running out to meet him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. This Greek word for weeping means to sob quietly without any sound. And here was Jesus. He already had announced he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he stands with his grieving friends, and he looks around and he sees the hurt, he sees the anguish, he feels the pain. He begins to cry. Quietly, the tears run down his face. I want you to think of Jesus as that kind of a God. What does God do at funerals? He cries. His great heart feels the hurt that you feel, that I feel. In the ancient world, there was a custom that at funerals you would pass around a little bottle. You'll see them sometimes. And each mourner would put a tear in the bottle. And when each mourner had put a tear in the bottle, you'd seal it up and you'd put it in the tomb with the dead person. And then in the next life, the God or whatever could look at the tear bottle and see all the sorrow that had accompanied this person's death. And David says in the Psalms, God, I'm in anguish. Let me put my tears in your bottle. God comes to you in hurting times with a bottle of tears. He cries. And I love that image of Jesus in anguish at these poor friends who had lost their dear brother, two unattached sisters apparently, who had no one in this society to care for them, and now their one male means of support is gone. And weeping at the loss of his beloved Lazarus, and Jesus stood. <clears throat> A week later, he came down this hill. In his ears, he could hear the hosannas, save us. With his eyes, he could look around and see the happy, excited people waving palm branches. And it says he wept aloud over it. Somewhere here, he stopped and began to cry. <coughs> aloud. You can imagine what that crowd thought. We just proclaimed this guy king. But listen to what he says. If you, if you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, shalom, 
but now it's hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build a bank around you, encircle you, and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children who are within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize God's time of coming to you. Now, why did Jesus weep? Well, maybe he looked out here and he knew some people would believe in God and some didn't, so he wept that people weren't saved or born again. But I don't think that's the focus at all. I think Jesus came here and he looked at those crowds and he heard the hosannas and he saw the palm branches and he looked into the future and he knew that if they looked for peace in that direction, what was going to happen right down here? cry out loud that people sought peace in that way. That's not where it is. And yesterday we walked through the Herodian mansion and saw the burn marks on the floor. Today we stood by Robinson's arch among the debris of the fulfillment of that prophecy. If people had recognized Jesus' battle plan and had risen up in force and began to bring that kind of love and peace to the people of this city and this community and this country. That may not have happened. Now here's my very personal thought for you and for me as part of this faithless. How does Jesus cry for you? Because in a sense, he cries for everyone. If you love him, if he's your friend, he cries with your hurt. If you don't know him, he weeps out loud because you don't know who he is. Why does Jesus cry for me? Does he cry because I hurt? because of my grief at the loss of someone I love? Or does Jesus weep bitterly for me? Because when he came as the Lamb of God, I missed the point. Let's think about what the faith lesson here would be for us as we look at this event in, in that particular time and setting and cultural place. Could you accept a Messiah whose kingship whose kingdom came by being a lamb. That to me is the key issue. He came on the donkey and people say Hosanna, which is a political thing, we want a king. They wave palm branches, which is a way of saying we want a king, we want a deliverer. But Jesus came on lamb selection day as a way of saying, yes, I'm the king, but my kingship is going to come like I just told you on the road down there by my being a servant. I'm going to go and give my life and that will usher in my kingdom. And that brings us back, I think, as part of our faith lesson to say, if we hope to be those who implement the kingdom of Jesus in the culture we live in, there's the method.
The ancient land of Israel is a testimony, an evidence of the greatness of what God did in that country, a testimony to the truth of the words that we find in the pages of the Bible. On the night before he died, Jesus went with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane in that culture meant olive press. There's no olive press today in the Garden of Gethsemane, but there is one. In fact, there are many in the town of Capernaum, the town where Jesus lived during his three-year ministry. That olive press, I believe, came to symbolize the weight, the weight that Jesus carried, the weight that Jesus felt as he went to the cross. Welcome to the ruins, the town of Capernaum. Capernaum comes from two Hebrew words, kafar, meaning village or town, small village, and Nahum, like the prophet Nahum. It's a town of about a thousand to maybe 1,500 people in the New Testament time, and it was the place Jesus chose as his town, Matthew says in Matthew 9, verse 1. And he did a large share of his ministry right here. You notice the unique kind of color here with the black basalt rock that distinguishes the towns in Galilee, different from the places in Judea we've been seeing. One of the main things of significance in this town, you can look right over to this side and see the remains of a synagogue. The synagogue actually dates to the third or fourth century, sometime after Jesus. But as you look closely, you'll notice that below the limestone, the lighter colored limestone, you'll see the dark basalt. And most of the uh, scholars believe that the original synagogue from Jesus' time is right below the remains of this one, and therefore probably followed pretty much the shape this one does, the outline this one does. And by looking at it, you at least get an idea of what the synagogue was like, though you need to know that's not an original. That's why we went to Gamla to see the synagogue, because the Gamla synagogue was there in Jesus' time. This one was not, although the base was. When Jesus had finished teaching this, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant. Now, why would a centurion be in Capernaum? Well, the reason is this city controls the Via Maris. So we would expect a Roman garrison to be here because there were tolls to collect, and there, this was kind of like a district headquarters. So there's a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him and asked him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, said Jesus' Jewish neighbors, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So interestingly, the synagogue over here, according to the Bible, was built by the centurion who was in charge of the Roman affairs here. Now, whether he was a believer in God or not is very difficult to say, but at the very least, we can say that the synagogue was built by the centurion and that made the people of the town love him, and therefore they wanted Jesus to heal his sick servant. Jesus does, of course, and he was amazed, he says to the crowd, at the faith of this non-Jewish Roman centurion. Also from this town, the disciples Peter, Andrew, James, John, and Matthew came. So we can say that five of the twelve came from this town. Matthew, in particular, a tax collector, who probably sat in a booth of some kind along the Via Mars and collected the taxes. This is the town that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, pronounces a curse on 
Let me read it to you. Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles have been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this time. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, what scares me about that curse is that I'm the Capernaum of today. I've heard it all. I've heard every miracle of Jesus. I've seen his hand in your lives and the lives of other people. And when you've seen Jesus in action, not to respond is an extremely serious thing. And the strongest curses in the Bible are not for the most evil people, but for the people who are evil who know better. This is olive-producing country. Now, the olive is very important for the economy of this country today. It was even more important probably in the Bible times. The olive was not only food, but it was the oil they used in their lamps. It was the only lubricating oil. It was the only preserving agent, the skin carried. I mean, they used it for almost everything that we would use petroleum or some kind of salve for. They used olive oil, so it's an extremely important uh, part of their economy. Now, one of the main industries of this town was the use or and the construction of these. Notice the kind of rock. It's called basalt. It's very porous and extremely hard. And you find these large basalt instruments in almost every archaeological dig that's done all the way across the country. They have this kind of equipment in it, which may have come, must have come from the Galilee, because that's where you find basalt. So this town, in some ways, you could say, was like the General Motors for crushers. It was a leading industry of this town. When you finally got the olives, here's how you process them. You put the olives in this sea, it's called, yam, sea, like the Sea of Galilee, sea. And then you take this large millstone with a stick through it, like this, fastened to a post in the middle. And you would have a donkey or an animal grab hold of the end of that stick and walk in a circle so that this huge stone rolled in here on the olives. You might walk around there for a few minutes, just rolling those olives. And what that would do to those black olives that were ripe is it would crack them. When they're finished cracking these olives, they scoop them up and they put them into a bag. It looks a little bit like a burlap bag. They bring them over to this instrument, large stone column here, which they then lift up, and they stack those bags of olives down here on this base. And then they set this large stone pillar back down on the olives, and they leave it stand there. As that enormous weight begins to set down heavily on those olives, after a few minutes, that very precious oil begins to drip down into this groove and down into the pit where it's caught. Then after a while, I take the olives out and maybe crack them again, put them back and get another squeezing. Less grade olive, but exactly the same idea. You'll notice that you don't see these in every private home. You could not, as a private citizen, afford to buy one of these things. What that meant was that a town like this, the wealthier, whoever owned it, controlled the local population. Because if you had 10 olive trees, You'd have to use their press to get the olives pressed, and that's one way kings and lords and rulers exerted control over the local population. They managed the production instruments. So that's how olives are produced. And that oil, that was almost a religious thing because of its connection with the whole idea of anointing and of Messiah. 
we can honestly say that the olive tree, in many ways, for the Jewish community, was the messianic tree. Two reasons for that. One, because the Messiah, the word Mashiach, Messiah in Hebrew, means to be anointed with olive oil. Priests were anointed, uh, kings were anointed, prophets were anointed with some olive oil, indicating that they were gifted and called by God. So the Messiah, we say Jesus, was the one who was anointed in a special way. So since olive oil was used for anointing, was the anointed one. The second thing about olive trees we've seen already, and that is when an olive tree gets old, they cut it down because there's too much trunk for the leaves. The following year, a new branch comes out of the old olive tree. And lo and behold, after a period of time, you've got a new olive tree and new fruit and lots of healthy branches. Now, God in the Old Testament compares the unbelieving nation of Israel to an olive tree, and he says, you didn't produce any fruit. But I was patient, I dug around you, I fertilized you, I, I kept you growing, and after a while, I looked, there's still no fruit. So God says, I cut you down. And then he says, behold, a new shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse, and will become a new olive tree with new fruit. Now, the Jewish community believed that that new shoot that was going to renew and restore and revitalize the nation of Israel in their mission was the Messiah. The Messiah is the shoot or branch out of Jesse. If Jesus is the branch, the stem, you, Paul says, as Gentiles, have been grafted in. That means your roots are the Jewish people. That's our stump. You can't exist and bear fruit without the Jewish roots. Second, it means Jesus is where you get your life and your energy. But the key is that the olives you produce. And Paul says, if God cut down the natural tree, what do you think he would do to you who've been grafted in if you don't bear fruit? Along the same lines of the curse on Chorazin, you go back and you're going to suddenly realize, hey, I'm the branch, I'm supposed to be bearing the olives. God had the whole Jewish nation for what reason? To give me the life to bear fruit. Jesus came to be the new shoot for what reason? So that I would have the life to bear fruit. Now the word for shoot in Hebrew is of the same root as the word Nazareth. Netzer. So the Bible says Jesus' parents went back to Nazareth in order that it might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. Now a Nazarene is somebody from shoot town, branch town. So Jesus came from Nazareth to indicate to us that he is the branch. Now let's set the stage with that for two things. Capernaum was a very typical Galilean town, and typically in a Galilean town like this, there would be a town square somewhere near the synagogue where people would congregate. First of all, imagine on a particular day, this Rabbi Jesus comes to his town, and he's teaching in the town square, and his disciples are there, that's his students, and they're all listening, and people are listening. Meanwhile, there are some parents who do what was a typically Jewish thing. They bring their children to be blessed by this important rabbi. Jesus' students are annoyed. They're probably annoyed about all the people gathered around to start with, because this is their faith lesson after all. But they're annoyed that these parents would interrupt with these little kids. Don't you know this is important stuff for adults? And Jesus stops that. And he says, no, no, no. Let the children come. Bring them here. So they park the crowd, and here comes these little children. And he takes a little child on his lap. And he sits with a little child. And he says, 
unless you become like one of these, you can't have a share in the kingdom of heaven. Now that in that culture was an incredible saying because children, though they were loved and were important, didn't have any status. I think what Jesus was saying is unless you give up your human status, unless you stop thinking of yourself as being important and become like one of these unimportant <coughs> ones, you really don't understand the battle plan for the kingdom. What's the battle plan? Make me unimportant that I can minister to you. Make you unimportant that you can minister to each other. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, they ought to take a millstone, they ought to hang it around your neck, and they ought to throw you in the sea. And remember what the sea meant. It's the power of evil, that's the abyss. They ought to throw you in the sea. Now I appreciate how Jesus felt about the people with no status. People who are unimportant. Whether that's the lowest member of your church, whether that's a little child, whether that's somebody in your school that nobody likes, I think that's what a little one is. And Jesus said, you cause one of those little ones to stumble in their faith. They ought to put one of these around your neck and they ought to throw you in there. And again, reinforcing that whole concept of it's pretty serious business. As you read the Bible, always think about the images of Jesus' message. That's a children's sermon. Not a whole lot like the sermons we often hear or we often give from pulpits with lots of big, wonderful, flowery words. But let me tell you something. What Jesus said there in 30 seconds nails you right where it really hurts. Because you can see the child. You can, can you imagine this around your neck? And there's the sea. That's the kind of a teacher he was. There's a second thing here. If we think of Jesus as the anointed one, the olive shoot, this pillar is called the olive press. We say Gethsemane. This is a Gethsemane. And its job is to squeeze out of the olive that very precious oil. And Jesus lived with Gethsemanes all his life, maybe walked by these very Gethsemanes, they're old enough. Near the end of his life, after he'd been here for three and a half years, he took his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi and he said to them, now, you go take on the gates of hell. And then as a great teacher, he said, let me show you how. Down he walked to Jerusalem, past all these little cities and towns, past all of these crowds that had followed him around, he got to Jerusalem, and after a week's ministry there yet, had his last supper, and he went out to the Garden of the Olive Press, the Garden of Gethsemane. He got down on his knees, and he began to experience the weight of what was going to be laid on him. And the weight of that was so incredibly heavy that it squeezed out of him his own blood. He was heavily pressed. So here's the image. This Jesus who taught and preached and did miracles and raised the dead and all the things we've experienced went to the Garden of Gethsemane and laid on him was the sin of the entire world, including you. 
And that weight was so enormous that he said, God, please take it away, but I'll do your will. The olives are Jesus. What is the weight? You. This is you. You are what squeezed out of Jesus as it were his own blood. I haven't talked much about salvation yet, but I'd like to have you think about that. The fact that Jesus' message not only was be loving and meek and change the world, Jesus' message was it starts with you becoming my Gethsemane. And even if I had been the only one who ever sinned, Jesus would still have had to go. He went to hell forever in six hours. For each person that will be in heaven. I think that's a credible image that we need to see in his teaching along with his battle plan for the kingdom. Dear God, we stand here among very ancient pieces of equipment. Maybe Jesus saw these. We know he was here. We know he taught here. And he loved the people who lived here. In fact, he was one of them. I thank you for helping us to understand his Jewishness, his teaching way. I thank you for helping to impress upon us the lesson of not causing other people to be weakened, to stumble because of our insensitivity or our lack of love. Thank you that he always loved those who were little. Most of all, I'm just grateful today that in all our talk about kingdom and about confronting evil, that we discover that we're empowered to do that because you took on yourself the olive press, the Gethsemane, the weight of my sin and the sins of each one of us. Thank you, Lord, that we are new and free and clean and not guilty. And now we want to be grafted in shoots to your olive tree with the stump of the Jewish people so that people would note a lot of fruit in our lives. those videos that just kind of jumped out to you. I know every time I watch one of his, there's something new that I never thought about. So what, what are some things that jumped out to y'all watching this tonight, these two tonight? I had always thought that Hosanna was a praise uh, and an acclamation thing. I didn't realize it meant free us. I guess I'm the only dummy in here that hadn't looked that up in a recording. <laughs> but I'll admit it, so there yeah, it is. That was a new one for me, too. John, uh, he knew. He's not all along. <laughs> not all along. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, it wasn't you, but I, again, that the fact that the children were of no, of much lower significance. We think a lot more of children in our culture ever than, than uh, 
to the point I think we you know maybe I'm so. guilty of this we maybe idolize them a little bit too much but I like but that's what, because mine are perfect <laughs> I, I like the point he made about that sure because um, again previously I've thought of become like the little children I, I've thought of that as pure in heart and forgiving and innocent but the twist he puts on it was that they had no status and of course the one thing that the Lord throughout the Bible comes down hard on is our pride and our self thinking and our desire to have status and so that was another new twist for me okay I'm not going to say anything else <laughs> I never knew until tonight that um, what we now call Palm Sunday, the Sunday before the Passover was Lamb Selection Day. Yeah, that was interesting, and the whole palm, palms being a symbol of freedom, too. Yeah, those were. What was that, Exodus 18? Does anyone remember what that reference was? Exodus 12, I think. Exodus 12 is the first one. Is it Exodus 12? Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Exodus 12, 1 through 6, and then 12, 15 is what he's got. Well, Jake, this is strictly from the country boy. But that coat that he rode had never been ridden. So that coat was God sent. We don't know that Jesus was a rodeo cowboy. <laughs> yeah, it is astounding. Yeah, we went to um, we went to Cheyenne in July, and they have the um, wild pony race where it's an unbroken horse. I want to get on one. <laughs> That took some uh, fortitude, like most of the things Jesus did, took some fortitude for sure. I liked the uh, the point about Gethsemane means olive press. I mean, I, I've never, ever heard that. And you would think somewhere along the way, somebody would say, oh, by the way, that means you know olive press. Um, and... Uh, you know, he made the point of, you know, he felt the the weight of the world on him. Um, but, um, you know, just the fact that um, there's so much in all of Jesus's ministry that, uh, you know, beyond just the obvious, there are, are these other pieces that fit so perfectly that you know we may never even know about uh like the olive press representing uh the weight that he was carrying uh as he went to the cross and uh, you know he didn't really make the point but he taught he did talk in the beginning about 
you know, you press the oil out of the olives and, and the olive oil was something that was very, very uh, useful to them because it had so many different purposes and stuff. And so, you know, what came to mind to me is out of this great weight that is pressing down on these olives comes something beautiful out of that. Yeah, Vanderlaan does a fantastic job of taking stuff like that, that you, know, you would think would be obvious at some level and bringing it out that, you know, I guess, I just read Gethsemane, it never occurred to me to look, what, is it, what does it actually mean? Uh, I remember the last time we did this series, he talked about uh, the miracle feeding the, the, two, the two groups. One time there were 12 baskets, and one time there were, I think it was seven baskets left over, and that, that was symbolism of the 12 tribes of Israel and then the seven, seven tribes or groups of, uh, I guess, Canaanites. Um, historically, they're showing that he was the God of both of them. I mean, I've heard those stories preached on. I've read those throughout my entire life and never made that connection. But he does a beautiful job of bringing out those things. I thought it was just interesting also about how the whole picture of him coming in and how the crowd is quiet and then they start chanting and knowing how, and, and finally knowing how dangerous <coughs> that was and why, you know, I always thought that the the Pharisees and the scribes said, yeah, quiet them down because they just didn't like the, the attention as opposed to seeing or knowing now that there was there was real fear of retribution. And that and I, that never, ever occurred yeah. to me before. So um, maybe what you're saying brought to my mind, and if I got it wrong, so every year they expected the Messiah to show up, and that's when um, this riffraff or this confusion of prophet or Messiah, they would they kill that person every year, like they strung up Jesus? Or? Oh, but I don't know if they did every year or if it was just when somebody had the audacity to come in and say, I'm, I'm the man. man. So I, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know on that one. Well, because one of the um, one of the scriptures, there was another man that people called the Messiah, thought he was the prophet, but he wasn't. So evidently, there were people going around saying they were. Yeah. I don't know how often that was occurring, but there were certainly people mm -hmm. doing that. It's just a pile of interesting study. It's called the crucifixion of the warrior king. Remember how the Jews under Samuel, they wanted the king to lead us out in battle. And God said, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me to Samuel. But yet God, he accommodates them. And so David becomes a symbol of the Messiah. But still they, they have this, it's going to be a warrior there. When the when their warrior king got crucified, there you go. Yep. Uh, part of the thing with the Hosanna, that they're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. 
So in Psalm 118 is about uh, God's salvation. So it may have been a political statement, but it was also a religious statement. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's not just the palm. I mean, the palm branches, I've never known that, that that was associated with the Maccabees till tonight. And, uh, but they're also quoting the old. Uh, there's a, a reference there. Yeah. Politics that, and religion were very intertwined. Yeah, they were. And this is the and this is also the passage where right after that this the uh, the cornerstone and other or maybe it's right before it but any rate it's it it's also in that psalm the uh, the stone that they rejected so that that psalm has a lot of significance right here and it you know I think the New Testament, Matthew is is uh, well. He's recording what happened, but what happened is God saying, "Hey, go back here and look, because this is what's going on right here." Yep. John is one eighteen a, a song of ascension. I think yeah. it's right before. Just before. The, yeah, one one twenty is where you start I think the psalm of ascension so it's pretty close but it's a psalm that there's a uh, it talks about his steadfast love endures forever let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever I mean there's a lot that psalm is loaded uh, the verse. Yeah, it's verse twenty-two. Oh, verse twenty-two. The stone yeah. that the yeah. builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Yeah. A lot of songs out of there. Uh, yeah, yeah, there are. I don't want to minimize uh, the point that uh, the Pharisees didn't like Jesus because that's a very real thing. But I also think that it plays into this whole concept uh, of, that we were talking about <clears throat> where the Pharisees were afraid uh, as the people you know, are, are proclaiming, hey, the Messiah is here, he's coming. Uh, no, 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 you need to be quiet so that we don't get in trouble with the, the Romans. <clears throat> and I think there's a lesson for us there, uh, you know, the, the Pharisees kind of saw themselves uh, as the protector of the Jewish religion, but also as, you know, the ones that were in control to make sure we maintain this delicate balance between uh, our semi-autonomy and uh, the rule of, of the Romans. Uh, yet, there seems to be in Jesus' statement of even if the people were quiet, the rocks would cry out of, uh, you know, God is in control and you need to surrender your will to his and realize that it's not you that's in control, uh, it's God and that's what discipleship is about. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the arguments, I was sitting there thinking while you were talking, that spurred me. One of the arguments for his uh, saying that was a political statement, the crowd's looking for the, the, 
the Messiah that's going to physically save them is this is the exact same crowd that calls for his crucifixion four or five days later. Yeah. So, so in other words, they did not, they were not looking for what he was giving. No. And came to realize it. The basis of his weeping, he saw her that day at yeah, that was interesting. Him contrasting the two ways, the two causes for Jesus to God. Yeah, yeah, that was very interesting. And then the question: Why is he weeping for you? Is he weeping because you're hurting, or is he weeping because you don't get it? Am I seeking God in my life? Wait. Yeah. We are officially uh, at 7.30. Thank you all for coming. Next week we will do the next video. We'll just do one per week the next um, three weeks and, and finish out this series. But thank you all for coming. Have a good evening. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs every Sunday at 1040 a.m. as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.